We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 500 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, February 3rd, 2023. It is 2.3.23. Hey, 2 plus 3 equals 5. This is episode 500. It all works out. Uh, this podcast somehow, someway has lasted for 500 episodes, 500 episodes of you and me talking Washington, D.C. area sports, 500 episodes of you and me talking about the Commanders and the Nationals and the Capitals and the Wizards and the Orioles and Maryland and Georgetown and Virginia and Virginia Tech and Navy and more, Uh, 500 episodes of you and me talking about Dan Snyder, and Ron Rivera, and Jason Wright, and Jack Del Rio, and Scott Turner, and The Learners, and Mike Rizzo, and Davey Martinez, and Ted Leonsis, and Brian McClellan, and Peter Laviolette, and Tommy Shepard, and Scott Brooks, and Wes Unsell Jr., and The Angelos Family, and Mike Elias, and Brandon Hyde, and Mark Turgeon, and Kevin Willard, and Mike Loxley, and Patrick Ewing, and Kendi Amatololo, and so many others. 500 episodes of wins, and losses, and sometimes ties, and trades, and signings, and waiver wire claims, and transfers. 500 episodes of opinions, and stats, and rants, and scheduled fun. I don't know if all of this is a good thing or a bad thing, but hey, it is a thing. (laughs) And here we are, 500 episodes of the Al Galdi podcast. You know, I started this podcast a little less than two years ago. Episode one came out on February 9th, 2021. Uh, That was an intro episode of the podcast. February 22nd, 2021 was the first full-fledged episode of the podcast. 500 episodes ends up being a little less than two years worth of what we're doing. What are we doing here? What exactly are we all doing here? I don't know. Uh, But with this podcast, new episode each weekday, Monday through Friday, with each episode out oh so early each weekday morning, this podcast wakes up with you. This podcast follows sports so that you don't have to. Uh, The focus of the pod, of course, is the commanders, because that is what most of you care about the most by far. But I wanted this podcast to be something different than just another podcast about the football team. And so what you get with this podcast is comprehensive coverage of the D.C. area's other teams, coverage that you don't get anywhere else. Now, I know that some of you only care about the commander's coverage, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. Hey, this is why I do the timestamps for every episode. Yes, in case you do not know, there are timestamps for every installment 
of the podcast. So you know where segments are. You can pick and choose what to listen to based on what you care about. Uh, But for years, Nationals fans and Capitals fans and Wizards fans and Orioles fans, etc., have been woefully underserved. And so this podcast is an attempt to correct that. Uh, This podcast is a movement, my friends, a revolution. And you are the biggest reason for the revolution lasting for 500 episodes. So I thank you sincerely for listening and downloading and subscribing and rating and reviewing. Uh, This 500-episode milestone is a credit to you, so thank you. Hello and welcome to this Friday, episode 500 installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Uh, This episode is a simple episode, two big guests. Uh, Next segment, I'm going to welcome on Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post, and we're going to talk about the state of the commanders and about the stalled sale of the Nationals. Uh, Barry always has really good big picture thoughts on the Commanders. He lately has written some very good columns on where the team is at. And so we're going to get into where we're at with the head coach, Ron Rivera, the sale of the team, the roster, and more. Uh, And Barry is going to discuss what the deal is with this sale of the Nats that seemingly is going nowhere. Uh, Barry this week had some significant news on what's going on. He's going to get into that. A potential endgame for the biggest obstacle to a sale of the Nats, the Masson dispute, and more. Barry's Verluga next segment. And then after that, former Redskins general manager Charlie Casserly will be with me to talk about the man who he succeeded as Skins GM, Bobby Bethard, who we on Wednesday afternoon learned had died at the age of 86. Uh, Charlie worked under Bobby for years. Charlie very much understands the inner workings of the Skins during their glory days of the 1980s and early 1990s. And Charlie is going to provide some tremendous detail on the greatness of Bobby Bethard, including why specifically he was so good as a GM, uh, how he got along with head coach Joe Gibbs, how the owner, Jack Ken Cook, was to deal with, uh, the story of the Skins' all-time great 1981 draft and more. Uh, I think that you'll enjoy these conversations. Barry's Verluga and Charlie Casserly on this episode 500 of the podcast. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of emails on 500 episodes of the pod. Some of these emails are pretty funny. Uh, email from the great Eric Stork of Wheatman, uh, writes Eric, Congratulations on reaching this milestone. Commanders slash Washington football slash Redskins are just not the same without your regular early morning pods. Sally forth onward and upwards. I look forward to sharing your success at episode 1000. Uh, Thank you for that, Eric. Although let's get to episode 501 uh, before we talk about episode 1000. Email from Jack L. Writes Jack, congratulations on number 500 and thank you for following sports so well that I do not have to as much. Uh, Also, I wish you continued and big success with your podcast and other endeavors you may have. Thank you for that, Jack. Uh, Yes, one of the many mantras with this podcast is we follow sports so that you don't have to. Because let's be honest, following sports is work and you have enough going on in your lives. Uh, Email from Robert Delaney writes, Robert, Friday and episode 500. Any chance for a special foam party? Good question, Robert. Yeah, when I did the morning blitz with Al Galdi on 980 weekdays from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., I, at the end of the opening segment of each Friday show, conducted what I called the Friday 5 a.m. foam party. Uh, I don't know if foam parties are still a thing, but they were when I was in college, late 90s, early 2000s. There was a club in D.C. that was famous for foam parties. I can't remember the name of the club. It was near what is now Capital One Arena. But anyway, foam parties, uh, lots of electronic dance music, aka EDM, uh, lots of baggy cargo pants, lots of glow sticks, lots of ecstasy, in which I did not partake. I was a good boy. And literally, foam. There would be foam everywhere. Well, I can at least give you the air horn (laughs) that I used to play during the Friday 5 a.m. foam parties. Here you go. 
Yes, sir. An episode 500 phone party. Uh, email from Andy writes, Andy, welcome to the 500 Club. You have earned your place among a rarefied cohort of greats, even without PEDs. You ascend to this lofty height and join the ranks of Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Wayne Gretzky, Alex Ovechkin, Tom Brady, and Peyton Manning. I remember the first days of your pod. I was worried it wouldn't last, but felt more comfortable once you started getting sponsors. Most people hate commercials, but they, for me, were reassuring signs that you'd be sticking around. So a big thank you to Dr. George Verghese, Paulson and Ace, Imageworks, Winbed, John G., Weedman, and everyone else who has kept the pod alive since the very first episode in which the biggest concerns were the theme music for the show and whether you should cuss on the show. I want to express my gratitude for all of the hard work and dedication you pour into every show, including the late nights and meticulous research. You embody what it means to be a true fan of DC sports, providing a sense of community and connection in an environment in which hope is often scarce for that I am truly thankful. Well, boy, thank you for that, Andy. Very nice of you. Gee, you're going to make me cry, man, all right? Uh, look, as I sit here recording this in my basement, surrounded by pillows and blankets for soundproofing at, uh, what time is it? 4.08 a.m. on Friday. Uh, I really like doing this, okay? I love doing this. I get asked if I miss radio, and the answer is no. I miss some of the people, for sure. Uh, I miss the camaraderie for sure. I miss talking uh, to some of the great callers who I used to have. But there's a lot about radio that I don't miss. And there's a lot about radio that is inherently flawed when compared to podcasting. You see, in radio, you have to fill a specific amount of time with every show. You know, two hours, three hours, four hours, regardless of if there's a lot going on or not. And so what you end up getting with a lot of sports talk radio shows, and I mean a lot, is time filler segments. You know, like killing a penalty in hockey. You're just trying to kill time, kill clock. And so you get a lot of nonsense segments, segments, you know, with calls just for the sake of taking calls or segments in which, you know, the host just ask the producer a bunch of questions. To me, so much of that just isn't entertaining. And, you know, look, all of this is subjective, I'll grant you. But to me, so much of that isn't entertaining, isn't good. A podcast is, or at least should be, exactly the length that it needs to be, depending on what's going on. There's no time filler. There's no just trying to kill clock. And you can listen on demand. Uh, radio is cable TV, podcasts, are streaming. The former isn't going to necessarily go away, but the latter is the future and in a lot of ways is the present. And look, when it comes to this podcast, I don't have it all figured out, okay? This podcast is not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm constantly uh, thinking about the show, trying to make it better, but you know, you do what you think makes sense. You do what you think works and you know, you kind of go from there. So again, thank you for the support. A salute to you on this episode 500 of the podcast. Thank you to all of the sponsors of this podcast, past and present. If you would like to sponsor the pod, if you would like to advertise your business or practice on the pod and grow your business or practice and make more money, hit us up. That email address is the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. And that money that you make from advertising on the pod, you can better manage with the hiatus app. If you haven't downloaded the hiatus app, what are you waiting for? Uh, I've downloaded the Hiatus app, and it's great. Hiatus is a personal financial management app that allows you to take full control of your money. The Hiatus app is a great way of getting your bills, your utilities, and your subscriptions organized. Get a better handle on where your money is going and download the Hiatus app. Hiatus allows you to see all of your subscriptions in one place and lets you cancel the ones that you don't want or need in just a few taps. Hiatus can alert you if any of your monthly bills, like your cell phone bill or internet bill, are negotiable and has an in-house team that actually can negotiate and lower those bills for you. Download the Hiatus app from the App Store, from Google Play, or by going to hiatus.app. There's no cost to downloading the app. 
Download it and see what it can do for you. Again, download the Hiatus app from the App Store, from Google Play, or by going to hiatus.app. Hiatus, take control of your money. Well, next week, as you probably know, is the lead-up week for the Super Bowl. Uh, And while trades in the NFL can't become official until the new league year begins on March 15th at 4 p.m. Eastern, uh, we in years past have had trades agreed on during lead-up weeks to Super Bowls. It was on January 30th, 2018, the Tuesday before the Super Bowl for the 2017 season, that the news broke that the Redskins had agreed on a trade for Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Alex Smith. It was on January 30th, 2021, two Saturdays before the Super Bowl for the 2020 season, that the news broke that the Los Angeles Rams had agreed on a trade for Detroit Lions quarterback Matthew Stafford. So who knows what could be coming over the next week or so. Uh, Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers, Las Vegas Raiders quarterback Derek Carr, perhaps news on those guys is coming. Uh, In the meantime, the Commanders, uh, they still need an offensive coordinator off the firing of Scott Turner all the way back on January 10th. You know, we're getting close to the one-month mark since the Commanders fired Scott. Uh, The Commanders also uh, may well soon be sold. There could be news on that coming any moment now. You know, we just don't know. Uh, There has not been much news on the sale of the team lately. Uh, But yeah, the widespread expectation continues to be that a sale of at least majority ownership of the team is coming. That the co-owners and co-CEOs, Dan and Tanya Snyder, are getting out. Uh, This as the sale of another major team of Washington, D.C., the Nationals, uh, seems to have totally stalled. Joining me now to talk commanders and Nats is Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post. He's written a number of good columns lately, also has broken some news on the sale of the Nats. You can follow Barry on Twitter at Barry's Verluga. Hey, Barry, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Al. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I was thinking about our conversation here. I just mentioned the firing of Scott Turner. So that happened on Tuesday afternoon, January 10th. It was on that Tuesday morning that we had that joint season-ending press conference of Commander's Head Coach Ron Rivera and General Manager Martin Mayhew. And you at that presser asked Ron about the job that Scott had done this season. And, And Ron gave this very short and cryptic answer that came off like a kiss of death. Quote, I think Scott did his job, did the things that he tried to do. We're going to self-evaluate and go through that process. End quote. In fact, here was the exchange. And how did you think Scott Turner did as offensive coordinator this year? I think Scott did his job. Did the things that he he tried to do, and you know we're going to self evaluate and go through that process. Yeah, there you go. Uh, what were you thinking when Rod Rivera answered your question like that? Yeah, I was like, is he going to be? I think that was a Tuesday press conference. I was like, is he going to be fired by the end of the Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday? Because it was it was pretty clear. And you know, Al, I'm I'm not. I there were times during Scott Hunt. Turner's tenure here where I thought, boy, that's a nicely designed play. And you could see, um, the concepts and a lot of stuff made sense. I, I, I thought, um, he struggled more with play calling and, and the appropriate play at the right time. Um, than he did with the actual, you know, how the offense, um, looked. Um, but yeah, you're right that day it was clear that a change was um, going to be made. And now we're, I mean, I guess we're a few weeks later. I'm not sure we have a ton of clarity about who the next person is going to be. I was, I I like um, the fact that, that Rivera interviewed Anthony Lynn. I, I, that he and obviously Eric the enemy, um, I find much more palatable or exciting than you know the Pat Shermer retreads of, of the world. So um, I'm curious where this ends up. I'm not as freaked out that uh, um, it hasn't been done yet as maybe some people are. Um, but it's a big, big hire in what it amounts to a big, big year for Ron Rivera. No doubt. Ron Rivera, three seasons as Washington head coach, zero winning regular seasons. And now this expected ownership change. We know the phrase dead man walking. Do you view Ron essentially as fired coach coaching or is him lasting as commander's head coach beyond the 2023 season more of a possibility than a lot of people seem to think? Well, I mean, he does kind of feel a little lame ducky. Um, 
and and you knew i think i wrote this you know kind of late in the season that um whatever you thought of his performance in the 2022 season he was going to be back for 2023 because the owner that is in the process of exploring a sale um isn't emotionally and and you know time-wise invested enough to fire a coach with two years left on his deal to to search for a new coach, a new staff, a new direction, and then hand the whole operation off to um, another another owner. So you, you knew you were in with Ron for for 2023. I actually do think there's a path to this team taking a step forward next year. Um, as much as I believe, you know, it's it's hard to see progress when year seven and nine and year one, seven and 10 and year two and eight, eight and one in, in year three. I mean, that, those aren't you, you, Nick Sirianni is in year two in Philadelphia and, and where is he right now? Right. So um, I, I, I think that he should be scrutinized, but I also think, you know, we know the defensive front is in a position to be dominant. We, think that there are a reasonable number of, of decent weapons on uh, offense. Yes, there will be, there are holes to fill and a huge, you know, annual question at quarterback, but I don't think it's crazy that, that, you know, they could go 10 and seven next year um, and, and make the playoffs. And, and then you're, you're saying to a new owner, are you going to fire this guy that took you to the playoffs for the first time in, well, I guess they went, you know, when they were seven and nine, but had a winning record and, and made the playoffs. Are you going to move on from him? Um, I just, I, I guess I, I don't think it's impossible to see a path that, that Ron stays beyond this, this next year. Every Commanders fan, myself included, can't help but be frustrated by Ron Rivera over three seasons as Washington head coach, still not having had the step forward season that this season supposedly was. Uh, when NFL head coaches every season now are having true step forward seasons in first or second seasons in coaching tenures. Uh, that said, I think that we would all agree that Ron's situation with the Commanders is, uh, shall we say, unique. I mean, things have been really screwed up with this team for a really long time. And Washington, during his tenure as the team's head coach, has had one problem slash controversy slash scandal after another. What is the right balance of, on the one hand, holding Ron accountable for his lack of winning as Washington head coach, while on the other hand, recognizing the like whacked out nature of his circumstance. I kind of think it's fair to look at it both ways. Now, okay, I mentioned Sirianni, right? I mean, they they fired Doug Peterson in Philadelphia, a Super Bowl winning coach, essentially because of a dispute over what direction they wanted to go at, at quarterback. The roster there was not in shambles at, at that point. And Sirianni has made the most of, of, you know, Jalen Hurts and they made a great trade for AJ Brown and they have, you know, and, and drafted Devontae Smith and, and they're often, often running. And so maybe that's um, an unfair comp- comparison but i also think that it's hard to play in a division where sirianni's got the eagles in the super bowl in year two brian dayball comes in in the first year um takes a quarterback who has you know basically wanted most people want to run out of new york got a productive season out of daniel jones they make the playoffs in first in the first year um it's hard to say to look around the landscape and see how quickly franchises are turned around and and then look at yourself and say but i'm completely hamstrung um by this peculiar set of circumstances where I work for this disastrous owner and we've had all these uh, off the field issues that kind of are baked in when you work in, in Ashburn that has affected his ability to move things forward, but not to the, to the point where he should be sitting, you know, two days after, um, after year three, a year in which he had promised a big step forward and say that going from seven wins to eight wins is that big step forward. Do you think that Ron Rivera publicly should be harder on himself and more critical of himself? I think it's a fair point. And I think, you know, you buy some time and sympathy from the fan base if you if you kind of start with, um, you know, we've got to be better here, too. I wish I think I've got to work on clock management and uh, game management in the offseason. I've got to figure out a way to instead of watching seconds tick away, getting the most out of every second, um, 
that we have in 60 minutes uh, on a Sunday. I, I think he could be um, a little more inward on, on that kind of stuff. Um, absolutely. He, he, he is very good. He, he was very good at the time he came in, given the chaos of the end of the Jake Rudin, Bruce Allen era of putting a very kind of um, strong jawed, you know, forward facing professional, um, you know, somebody with integrity in that way, he was what the franchise needed at that moment. And then you go into the tumultuous 2020 season, like that, that was, that was important, but I think we're beyond that now. And, and, you know, we can acknowledge that the, the big step forward did not happen in 2022. It, it kind of has to happen in 2023 and he's got to be, um, you know, accountable for that, not just for the team that he builds, but for him, his own coaching as well. We're talking commanders with Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, you and I have talked about the two drums that we've all been banging for years with this team, the quarterback drum and the owner drum. Uh, the quarterback drum clearly remains indeed of being banged, but the owner drum, uh, is that finally about to be remedied? Uh, are you a believer that, yeah, Dan Snyder is in fact selling majority ownership of the team? Uh, the reporting has continued to be along those lines. Uh, but of course, with Dan, we never know. So when I'm asked that question, I kind of answered in two ways. If, if I were to have to say, um, choose between Dan Snyder is selling the team or Dan Snyder will remain owner of the team um, in 2023 and, and going forward, I think the favorite is he's selling the team. I think there's a greater than 50% chance that he's doing that. Is there part of me that will not believe that this transaction is going through until the ink is dry and somebody else is pulling into that space that used to say Mr. Snyder out in Ashburn? Yeah, I, I think there's a healthy skepticism for all of us because nothing would transform, you know, we're talking about who's the offensive coordinator in 2023. That is such a tiny, tiny thing <laughs> yeah. when you put it against the, the backdrop of, holy cow, somebody else might own this franchise. And that, you know, where everything feels inherently limited and the possibilities are, are capped and we've been beaten into submission by almost a quarter century of really dreadful results uh, on the field. I mean, one playoff win this century, um, while you see like former dregs of, of the league, like the Bills rebuild themselves into um, a powerhouse, like the possibility that, that, um, that ownership could change and, and then everything would it'd be like spring around here. Like, like everything would seem possible uh, again. Who's he going to, who's this person going to hire? What, what professionals are he, is he going to put in place? Um, all of that stuff. There's, there's really no bigger story in Washington sports than the idea that Dan Snyder could sell the, the commanders. It, it would be transformative. And I think people joke like, well, they'd have to hold a, a parade down um, Pennsylvania Avenue uh, for an ownership change because that's how that's how big a deal it would be to the fan base. I think. Yeah, the infusion of hope would be incredible. Heck, just the day on which we found out that Dan Snyder was exploring a sale. That statement from the Commanders this past November 2nd, quote, Dan and Tanya Snyder and the Washington Commanders announced today that they have hired B of A securities to consider potential transactions, end quote. I mean, that statement felt like Christmas. Uh, and then there is the sale of the Nationals. Uh, you have been all over this. You and a piece that came out on Tuesday had the following, quote, here's the reality of the national sale process. Some people with knowledge of it are under what one term the operating assumption that the Lerner family will run the team for the entirety of the 2023 season, end quote. Uh, we know that the Masson dispute has been the biggest obstacle to the Lerners selling the team. Uh, when we last April learned that the Lerners were exploring a sale of the team, did they know the extent to which the Masson situation would be an obstacle to the learners getting what they feel is true market value for the team? Or do you think that the learners are surprised by the extent to which the Masson mess has been an obstacle to a sale? 
I, th- I think they're surprised by it. I was told very early in the process, um, you know, when I was asking around about how, how mass might hinder, hinder this, um, somebody who's intimately involved said, um, I point out that that this team was sold with Masson in place uh, once before, and that's true. Masson was in place when MLB um, sold the team to the Learners in 2006. That it lingers over the club, you know, all these years later, I think is surprising. Um, but I also think people should understand that um, it's not it's not something that Rob Manfred can just come in and, and solve. This is a deal that empowers the the Baltimore Orioles with the Washington Nationals media rights um, going forward uh, in perpetuity until and unless the Orioles agree to, you know, sell them back to, uh, to and whoever owns Washington. So if you're Ted Leonsis and you own not only, you know, three other professional teams in town, but more importantly, you own a regional sports network. Um, part of the reasons that the nationals would be attractive is if you had 162 games of programming to fill your summer with, and then you fill the winter with the wizards and the, um, and the capitals, and you've got a, a complete programming lineup for your RSN. He doesn't have that. If, uh, if he buys the nationals as in with, the, the Masson deal um, in place. So there's, I don't know if you want to get into the nitty gritty on what's coming up in court and stuff, but there's, there may be a path coming forward where we get some clues about um, rights free fees from, from Masson in the future. Um, but until that's resolved, uh, you know, Ted Leonsis or anybody doesn't really know what they're buying um, because they can't be certain about what revenues they'd get from that very important revenue stream. No doubt. And just so everyone is aware, explain if you would uh, what exactly is coming up in court. So just in in on March 14th, um, an appeals court in New York is hearing the, the Orioles appeal of a decision that granted the Nats something around $100 million in rights fees from the Orioles for the years uh, 2012 to 2016. If the, the Nats winnings are upheld, then People who are familiar with it think it would be much easier for um, the Orioles and the Nationals to look at the next five-year chunk, which is 2017 to 2021, determine a figure that's fair there. And then if a Leonsis is looking at that and can say, even if Masson is not stripped down and and, and um, the Nationals do not get their rights back, get their ownership of their rights so that they can sell them, at least he would have some sort of cost certainty on, okay, I see what I'm going to be making, where my revenues are going to be coming in. And that might clarify things a little bit uh, and it could get the um, get the ball rolling on a sale. Uh, this is a little bit speculative, but there's a path you can see there um, to, through the courts. The Masson situation is complicated enough, further complicating it, although perhaps also providing an avenue out of the Masson mess is what's going on with the Orioles' ownership, uh, the Angelos family. First of all, Peter Angelos has been in failing health for years, and there continues to be a belief that when he passes, the team will be sold. Second of all, this nasty Angelos family feud in which Peter's two sons are, like, at each other's throats. Uh, Louis Angelos, this past June 9th, filed a lawsuit against his brother, John Angelos, and their mother, Georgia Angelos, for control of the O's. And the litigation has resulted in a number of ugly accusations from Louis toward John and Georgia. Uh, How do you see what's going on with the Orioles' ownership potentially impacting the mass and mess? So I was under the impression and the wrong impression um, that if uh, the Orioles were sold, Masson would would go away. And I've since been corrected on that, that that in fact, even with transfer of ownership, um, the Orioles would maintain the Nationals uh, media rights. They would they would still still own them. So um, while I do think that the, the kind of battle between the learners and the Angelos's two very stubborn uh, families um, kind of defines and shapes the mass and mess uh, over years. Um, I both think that new ownership in Baltimore um, 
could bring a different dynamic to that, a, a more uh, collegial dynamic. But I also think that if you're buying the Orioles, one thing that's very attractive about buying them would be, well, holy cow, I not only have um, the media rights for my own team, but I have them for the team down the road. And that's of value if I'm going to sell it back to them or if I'm going to try to keep the arrangement as it is and just pay them whatever the fair rights fees are, but make more money myself. Um, that to me would be, in a way, that makes the Orioles a more attractive team to buy than, than the Nationals because one team has the rights for for two franchises and the other has the rights for zero franchises. Final question for you. Is there a realistic end game by which we get what most Nats fans want? And I bet even many, if not most Orioles fans want, and that is the Nats gaining control of their media rights and winding up on their own channel and the O's having their own channel and everyone living happily ever after. Well, I mean, I think the answer is there's a price for everything, right? Like, like uh, you could walk to, you know, Oriole Park at Camden Yards and into the executive suites there with a checkbook and say, okay, what's it going to take to get the, the rights back for the Nationals? Is it a billion dollars? I, I don't know, uh, Al. Um, but, but, you know, they, there is a point where it would make sense for a financial point where it would make sense for the, the Orioles to say, okay, yes, we'll grant you those back. Now, this is all against the backdrop of a problem for Major League Baseball, period, which is the regional sports network model is changing really quickly because people are getting rid of cable and cutting cords and going to streaming. And and baseball in New York, that's the central baseball, is trying desperately to get out ahead of a problem that they've been very behind on, which is a major, major source of revenue for all 30 of our teams has been what they're making from the regional sports networks that, that broadcast their games. If that's collapsing, where are we going to get the revenue to replace that with? So it's a complicated, sometimes arcane and boring problem, but it's a really big one, not just for these two franchises, but, but for the league and the sport as a whole. Great perspective. Great insight. Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post. Barry, great to catch up. All the best. Appreciate it. Thanks, Al. Thanks for having me. All right. You always get good stuff from Barry's Verluga. And up next, the second of our two special guests on this episode 500 of the podcast, former Redskins general manager Charlie Casserly, uh, the man who he succeeded as Skins GM, the great and uh, now sadly late Bobby Beathard. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
Well, on Wednesday afternoon had the sad news of the death of former Redskins general manager and Pro Football Hall of Famer Bobby Beathard, uh, the greatest executive in Washington, D.C. sports history. Uh, He was 86, had been battling Alzheimer's disease for years. But what, of course, does happen when someone like Bobby dies is that you gain further appreciation of how good the person was at his or her job. And I, on Thursday's show, episode 499, talked about the excellence that was Bobby Beathard as a player personnel guy. Bobby was the architect of the Skins' great teams of the 1980s. Uh, Among the players who Bobby Beathard drafted for the Skins, Pro Football Hall of Fame receiver Art Monk, Pro Football Hall of Fame guard Russ Grimm, Pro Football Hall of Fame corner Daryl Green, uh, edge defenders Dexter Manley and Charles Mann, linebacker Monty Coleman, quarterback Mark Rippon. Additionally, Bobby signed offensive lineman Joe Jacoby as an undrafted free agent. Uh, Bobby acquired center Jeff Bostick off him having been cut by the Philadelphia Eagles, who had signed him as an undrafted free agent just a short time earlier. Uh, Bobby engineered one of the best trades in Skins history, acquiring left tackle Jim Lachey from the Los Angeles Raiders in a deal that involved quarterback Jay Schrader going to the Raiders. On and on I could go about all of the great moves that Bobby Beathard made during his time as Skins general manager. Uh, The glory days of the Skins, 1982 through 1992, three Super Bowl titles, four NFC titles, eight playoff appearances, all happening over those 11 seasons. Bobby Beathard was a major reason for that incredible run. Uh, He was the Skins GM from February 1978 until May 1989. The man who succeeded Bobby as Skins GM and who worked under Bobby for years is the man who joins me now, Charlie Casserly. He was a Skins GM from June 1989 until July 1999. Uh, Charlie started with the Skins in June 1977. This as an intern for then Skins head coach George Allen. Uh, You can follow Charlie on Twitter at Charlie Casserly. Hey, Charlie, how are you? Great, great. How are you this say? Doing well. Thank you for coming on. When you think of Bobby Beathard, what comes to mind? Well, there's a lot of different uh, perspectives here or angles, I guess maybe the better word to take. First of all, um, as a person, uh, he was great to work with. Uh, you know, scouts uh, traditionally would go on the road for weeks at a time. Uh, in Miami, he set up a system where they came home every weekend. Uh, he was a family guy. He, he wanted us all to have that opportunity. That was huge. And and he proved it didn't make any difference in the long run, okay, about staying out long. In fact, the longer you stay out, the less effective you are. Um, openness. Uh, these are things behind the scenes. See, um, uh, our draft meetings, uh, all the scouts were in there. There was no closed doors. There was no hidden thing. So everybody saw the draft board. Everybody was involved in, uh, in putting the draft board together. He was very open about listening to everybody. Uh, he was very open about the coaches being involved. He wanted them involved. Okay, uh, the scouts and coaches were on the road together, so it was really a collaborative effort. And a lot of that, I think, he got when he was working with Shula because he kept he would always mention what we did in Miami, uh, meeting with Shula, and uh, a lot of places aren't like that. And as a young scout, that's how you grow and get better. Uh, you know, you're forced to stand on your feet in front of the audience and explain your position, uh, and you're held accountable for it. But you also learn from everybody else. So now we all know he would make the decision in the end, but we all had input. And that's all you can ask for in that situation. I think uh, he was an excellent evaluator, obviously, uh, but he was fearless. Uh, he was aggressive. Uh, he didn't worry about what other people thought. I remember one time uh, there was a player I was scouting in Eastern Kentucky. I don't know the name. And this is my first year as an intern. And I said, I came back and he said, what do you think? I said, I don't like this guy. I don't think he's very good. Here's why. He said, he has all these high ratings. He says, forget the high ratings. Go by what you see. And that's how he scouted. You sort of just addressed this, but what did you learn from Bobby Beathard that you applied to your time as Skins GM? Well, I I think the first thing was uh, uh, openness. And uh, uh, which I would, I wouldn't, I didn't know how a draft room was going to be run. Uh, my first year uh, working there, uh, you know, he was he didn't come. I started in uh, June of '77. He came in February '78. So I went through some periods there where um, he wasn't there, and it was run differently at that point in time. Uh, you know, you weren't really paid attention to. Uh, you know, you're off to the side. You didn't get good assignments. He wanted you to see all the good players. How are you going to know what a good player is if you don't see him? So that was one thing. Our scouts rotated and everybody saw good players, not just uh, uh, in their area uh, and across the country. 
And then the meetings, um, wide open meetings, uh, collaborative, coaches involved. Uh, so those are things I didn't know any better, and I learned from him, and it all made sense to me. Uh, the ability to bring young people along uh, and see them grow uh, along that way there. So that, as far as uh, uh, being aggressive, I, you know, I started under George Allen. So there's there's some things I learned from George Allen. One was he certainly was aggressive uh, to the point he traded draft choices he didn't know. <laughs> None of us did that, of course. But uh, uh, the aggressive part of it, uh, the, those are things that I learned from him. Bobby Beathard, his Skins GM, made a lot of outstanding player personnel transactions, but you certainly could argue that the most important thing that he did was hire Joe Gibbs as head coach. Uh, tell us about that. Joe Gibbs was there because of Bobby Beathard. Uh, I'm not sure Joe ever had a head coaching interview before the, uh, our interview there. Now, that, that's a, a guess somewhat on my part, going back a long time. But uh, uh, Ernie Zampezi, who was very close to... Uh, Bobby Beathard, and Ernie was coaching with the Chargers at the time, uh, and he touted Joe. He said, this guy's phenomenal. So uh, Bobby um, hooked up with Joe, uh, brought him back. I mean, Mr. Cook uh, did not know Joe Gibbs, and uh, at the end of the interview, he hired Joe Gibbs. Okay? So I think that that was something that uh, uh, right off the bat, uh, Bobby hit more than a home run as Joe went on to become a, a you know a Hall of Fame coach there. So, uh, you know, that that's something that I think uh, Bobby should get a lot of credit for. Did Bobby Beathard and Joe Gibbs clash? Uh, were there arguments? Was there ever any friction between Bobby and Joe? Well, you have to understand, well, let's go to Joe Gibbs for a second, okay? All the great ones are highly competitive. All the great ones, okay? Uh, I worked for a number of head coaches. Uh, the two toughest guys I ever worked for were George Allen, of course, I was only an intern then, and Joe Gibbs. But Joe Gibbs was the greatest coach I ever worked for. And, you know, he's one of the greatest coaches in international football, highly competitive, okay? But Joe would listen. Joe would have open meetings with every scout in there and coach and, and go over the roster and the cutdowns. It was the most open meeting I was ever around. But uh, Joe was highly competitive, and so was Bobby. So you're going to have some differences of opinion, and it's not clashes uh, about things. That's inevitable in any situation, okay? If you're not disagreeing, then something's wrong. Because nobody's going to see everything the same way. But uh, uh, certainly they had disagreements, but they always seemed to work it out. They had more agreements than disagreements. And, you know, sometimes one guy was right, some guys the other one was right. Same thing with Joe and I. Uh, that's just part of the job. Uh, but uh, ultimately, the, the, the team was uh, outstanding together. No question about that. A lot of conversation in these parts for years about ownership involvement in football operations. Uh, how was Jack Ken Cook as owner of the Skins from the perspectives of Bobby Beathard and you as Skins executives? He was, uh, here's the thing. He, uh, um, no involvement in the draft. Zero. Okay. He, he didn't know the players in the draft. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what Bobby did, but I would call him, uh, you know, a couple of days before the draft and give him an outline of what possibly could happen. And he appreciated it. Now we had to call him after every draft choice and go over it with him. Uh, if there was a trade, I had to call him before the trade and go over it with him, okay? Uh, I mean, he, he's the owner, okay? It's his team. It's not our team. So uh, uh, he never uh, interfered with a uh, draft choice. Um, if we were signing players uh, or making a trade uh, with me, he became involved. I don't know how many involved with Bobby was. But I'm sure he was involved now, okay? Uh, but he, he pretty much, at the end of the day, you had to rationalize it to him, Okay? Uh, I always said he was the toughest agent I ever negotiated with. But at the end of the day, if you really had a conviction on it, you got it. Okay? You just had to, you just had to prove it. Now, if I'm an owner, the heck, I'm not going on vacation and giving a guy a blank check. I want to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Okay? So that's what he did. Uh, but he was uh, a tremendous support. He was uh, Joe always said he was at best when times were the toughest for us, and he was. Uh, he always backed us. Um, he listened to... Two people, the head coach and the general manager, and nobody else. He didn't care what anybody else said, uh, and he, I, he had, did not care what the media said. He wasn't influenced by it. Uh, he was going to listen to the people he hired, and uh, and he used to say, uh, if, if, you, if you sit there and say yes to everything, why the hell is I hire you? Okay, he expects you to disagree with him, uh, but you had to come with your case and prove it, uh, and then he was open to listen to it. So if things didn't go well, Hey, you heard about it. 
uh, he holds he held you accountable. Uh, but he was a, a tremendous owner. It's a sin he's not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I can't tell you how many times uh, that I think of things that he said to me. He had a lot of phrases. Most of them I can't use. <laughs> but they were sayings. They were sayings. Like, for example, if you said, uh, uh, well, Mr. Cook, I don't think they're going to do, uh, do that. He said, well, how do you know they're not going to do that? Well, he's right. You never know unless you call. So, uh, you know, things like that were uh, uh, things that I learned from him. Uh, and, and he held Joe accountable. He had Bobby accountable. That's why he was a great owner. He's supposed to do that. We're talking Bobby Beathard with the man who succeeded Bobby as Redskins general manager, Charlie Casserly. Uh, the gold standard of Washington drafts is what Bobby Beathard and you and others did in the 1981 NFL draft. Uh, this really is something. First round, offensive lineman Mark May. Third round, Pro Football Hall of Fame guard Russ Grimm. Fifth round, edge defender Dexter Manley. Eighth round, receiver Charlie Brown. Ninth round, interior defensive lineman Daryl Grant, who was drafted as a guard. Twelfth round, tight end Clint Didier. And offensive lineman Joe Jacoby as an undrafted free agent. Uh, quite <laughs> the haul. Uh, what do you remember about that 81 draft? Yeah, you know, when you study teams, they usually have, in general, have that one draft. Okay, yeah, that, that really sets them apart. And you're right, it's, it, it was that draft, all right? So if you go with it, you know, the coaches were heavily involved. Coaches were heavily involved, but Bobby listened, okay? Joe was not a guy that got involved in the draft uh, as he evaluated players. He would evaluate the quarterbacks if we asked him. Uh, and actually, Didier was a guy that uh, went out there and evaluated Lomax and came back with Didier, uh, and that's how we got Didier in, 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 I think, the 12th round of the draft. Uh, so... That, that's how, first of all, that's at the stage. Um, Joe Bugle had a lot to say with the first pick, Mark May. Uh, we traded the second round pick to get Joe Washington. Uh, Bobby made a great job there. The third round pick, you know, uh, Russ Grimm. Uh, you know, uh, what I remember is, you know, Bobby, I'm sure uh, Joe Bugle liked him, but I know Bobby really, really liked him there. Uh, I'm remembering it. Uh, I think we took Tom Flick in the fourth. Uh, Joe had a lot to do with that. I think Dexter was in the fifth. Uh, you know, and we all know what Dexter was. We all knew what Dexter was. Okay, uh, this guy was a second-round pick, probably with uh, you know issues, uh, major issues. Uh, but you know, the, the Bobby decided along with Joe that hey, it's the fifth round. We'll, we'll go for it. Okay, um, I don't remember. I know um, uh, Charlie Brown was a guy that sent, sent us a highlight tape on him. It was very impressive. Uh, and I forget who went down to work him out. They came back. I think Dan Henning might have gone down to work him out. Um, and again, it, it, it hit a home run on that one. Daryl Grant, um, you know, was a guy that uh, uh, I, I think he was under. Uh, he might have been on defense or an offense. I which way he was in college. He ended up playing defense for us, but, but we drafted him as an offensive guard. So I remember it. Okay, uh, Jacoby, uh, I saw him uh, at Louisville, and the guy was the guy was a free agent. Okay, but I'm watching the tape, and uh, he played against a guy named Greg Meisner, who was a third-round pick from uh, Pittsburgh. He shut him out, and he played against a guy named Galloway from Florida, who was rated as a second-round pick, and he shut him out. And I'm thinking, oh, this guy's just shutting out these top picks. So uh, I, I met with Joe right after practice, and, and I said, Joe, come back in the spring. I want to see you working out. Uh, he had to change his body, okay? And so uh, he didn't go to an all-star game. He said that was the best thing that ever happened to him. I'm kind of paraphrasing him a little bit because I got to work out while those guys were uh, playing. So Bugle and I went back and worked him out. And the first thing is when he walked through the door, he blocked it. He honestly he blocked the door. Huh. Okay. Uh, and then, okay, that got everybody's attention. So uh, we worked him out. We liked him. And uh, we couldn't sell him to anybody back in the office. But when uh, uh, but I had been recruiting him. So I had him ready to go. And uh, Dallas was Dallas was on the doorstep. But we got him to get on a plane to come, see. And Hughes and I were honestly the only two who wanted him. Uh, we had drafted five offensive linemen. So, uh, but that is nobody's perfect in this thing, okay? Uh, so when <laughs> the great story is when Gibbs went in to recruit him, Joe thought he was a defensive lineman, okay? And Joe's recruiting him as a defensive lineman. So Jacoby, he's not sure what to do here now. But he had already been signed. So now it comes that, well, we don't need this guy. Joe, he's signed. We got no choice. <laughs> By the, end of, by the end of June, he was the starting left tackle. 
So uh, uh, it was a great sign. But it's you know, it's just it's sitting there where people are open. You know, there's some places that hey, we don't want the guy. You can't have him. No, you want him fine. We'll sign him as a free agent. So that there's a, there's openness yeah. involved with Bobby on the thing there. Bobby Beathard resigned as Skins GM in May 1989. You formally became Skins GM in June 1989. What was that transition like? Well, I was assistant general manager, and part of my job was to communicate with Jack Kane Cook uh, in that job on a weekly basis. So I really had seven years of an interview, uh, if you could look at it that way. Um, I think the strike team, which uh, myself and the scouts put together, uh, I think that, that took his attention quite a bit because he, he asked me about that. And everybody knew what my role is in that. Bobby was concentrating on you know, trying to keep the team together uh, and, and, and help negotiate the team out of the strike. Okay? So he was spending his time mostly on that. The scouts and I were putting together the strike team. And uh, so uh, when Bobby um, resigned, okay, uh, there really wasn't an interview in the sense that I've been interviewed for seven years. And, uh, you know, Jack Kent Cook told me that, uh, you know, you're now the general manager. So, uh, so that, that was how that went down, um, number one. But John Cook was heavily involved with the team from 82 on. So I had a lot of communication with John Cook. Uh, so that's kind of how the thing worked. And uh, uh, so uh, I, no one ever told me I, was, I got the job until he told me I got the job. So it wasn't like they, they said, well, you're going to replace Bobby Beathard if he ever leaves. Well, no one was expecting Bobby to leave. Remember, that came as a, a surprise uh, when Bobby decided to resign. Yeah, why did Bobby Beathard resign as Skins GM? Well, that, that's, I think that's something that uh, might be left to, maybe this isn't the right term, the grave at this point in time, and, and left with him. Okay. Uh, did you and Bobby Beathard remain close through the years? Well, uh, we've always remained friends. I think there was always a mutual respect. Uh, I, I championed his Hall of Fame course uh, well before uh, he got there. Uh, and, and, and he knew it, and he thanked me for it. Christine and his wife thanked me for it. So I was always pushing that. Um, I actually uh, went to the, the Hall of Fame when they have their uh, uh, selection process, uh, bring in, quote, a consultant, if you will, for whatever better, better name, uh, an outside person from the committee to talk to him. And I came in the year they elected Bobby. Uh, and I, I championed the course for Bobby. Uh, it was really at that point between him and George Young. One was going to get in. And uh, obviously, and, and, and George was a great influence in my life. And George absolutely deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but I, you know, uh, put it on the table what I thought the differences were in black and white. And uh, I thought that Bobby had uh, a little bit of an advantage over him. And Bobby did get the vote over George in that situation. So uh, uh, I always was a champion for him. Um, I could never understand why he wasn't in the ring of honor. That made no sense at all to me. Okay. I think he was voted into the Hall of Fame before he was voted into the ring of honor. Uh, so uh, I, I had, you know, things to say about that too. But, you know, that that's... I don't know who you direct that to in that situation. So, anyway. One more for you. I know that you and your current job as a consultant for the NFL are limited in what you can say about the commanders. But uh, generally speaking, what are your thoughts on where the team is at from a football standpoint right now off the first three seasons of Ron Rivera as the team's head coach? Uh, the roster has gotten better, but uh, the team under Ron still has not had a winning regular season. Well, see, I work for the league as a consultant, so I've made a decision. I don't talk about any of the teams because I uh, I communicate with all 32 teams uh, on issues. And uh, there's a number of people I work with individually. So when you talk about one, you got to be careful not to offend another. But I will say this. I believe in Ron Rivera. I think Ron, Ron Rivera is a coach. Uh, I think that uh, uh, you're not going to hit everyone right, uh, you know, they, they, Wentz didn't pan out the way they thought. Well, you know, it didn't pan out in uh, Philadelphia. It didn't pan out in uh, Indianapolis. And Philadelphia's in the Super Bowl right now. Okay? So uh, people can make mistakes on that. But I think he's a good football coach. Uh, obviously, they, uh, the quarterback is their albatross right now. But um, I think they've got, the, they've got the makings of a lot of positive things on that football team. So uh, hopefully they'll uh, uh, be able to get some luck in the offseason here at the quarterback position. 
Absolutely. Former Redskins GM Charlie Casserly, uh, great insight on, great memories of Bobby Beathard. Uh, Charlie, thank you very much for doing this. All right, great to be with you now. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Monday show, episode 501. We'll have a lot for you on the Commanders. Uh, We have the Senior Bowl at the University of South Alabama's Hancock-Whitney Stadium in Mobile, Alabama on Saturday afternoon at 1.30. That's certainly something to be thinking about this weekend if you are a Commanders fan. Also on Monday's show, I'll talk Wizards. Uh, Two games for the Wiz this weekend, home to the Portland Trailblazers Friday night at 7 and at the Brooklyn Nets Saturday evening at 6. Our Wiz have won a season-best six consecutive games. Might the winning streak be at 8 when we speak on Monday? Uh, Also, by the way, no Wizards All-Stars this season. Uh, Not yet, anyway. Someone could be named as an injury replacement, but we on Thursday evening learned of All-Star reserves for the NBA All-Star game, which will take place in Salt Lake City, Utah on February 19th. No Wizards. Uh, And on Monday's show, we'll talk college basketball. Maryland is at Minnesota Saturday night at 9. Georgetown is home to number 24, UConn, Saturday at noon. And we have number 6, Virginia, at Virginia Tech Saturday at noon. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.